The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fueled for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to listen to your word. We pray that the words that are spoken be the truth that you want us to hear. And may it transform our lives and illuminate our hearts and equip us with all that is required to go out and transform our communities. This we ask in your name. Amen. Today we start a new series looking at the prophecies of the coming Messiah. In this series, we explore how the people of Israel looked forward to the coming Messiah and what he will come and do for them. And how relevant this is to us as Christians as we look forward to celebrating Christmas and more importantly, the final coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Today, we look at the prophecies pertaining to the coming king, the mighty king. But before we get into the sermon, I would like to start by asking a question. How many of you have gotten your Christmas decorations up already? Yes, I'm sure a lot of you have already done that. It's December. I'm always puzzled and wondering when is the right time to put up the Christmas decorations? But also what's quite interesting to me is seeing the Christmas lights come up in the streets and observing the subtle competition between neighbours to see who would have the most spectacular lights in their house or rather in front of their house. With the shorter days during this time of winter, it is so lovely to see the lights break forth and brighten up the darkness of the night. In today's passage, we see the promise of light breaking out in the midst of darkness. This time, it is not a seasonal light that comes off and on. Neither is it a light that is just spectacular to view. It is instead the light of God that will permanently remove every form of darkness in our lives. We see that the darkness of sin, sickness, poverty, despair, and even war and calamities are in our world today. Many of us have known people or have experienced the impact of COVID. And that has brought a gloom on our world outlook. But thank God that we have the Messiah who we can trust and believe 
to take us away from this darkness by shining his great light. As a background, before we actually get into the text, let us look at what Isaiah, who Isaiah was and what he came to do. The prophet Isaiah was sent to warn of God's judgment. The Assyrians were going to come and conquer them and take them into exile because of the Israelites' injustice as well as their rebellion to God. This punishment was intended to purify them and God would put limits on their distress and eventually God would restore his people and through the coming of a Messiah who would now rule over them. Isaiah's prophecy begins with a warning and ends with a promise of hope, the hope of the coming Messiah. This message of hope was a promise that God had given from the very beginning during the times of Moses, that indeed the Messiah will come, that will lead them in all truth. And, and as a result, the people will be a blessing to the nations. With that background, we look into the text and we see Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The chapter begins with the encouragement. What was so particular about the people of Zebulun and Naphtali that they would have such a special call out? I believe that there were two issues that the people of Zebulun and Naphtali experienced. One was that of physical oppression and spiritual gloom. The people of Zebulun and Naphtali lived at the northeast of Israel. They were very close to the Assyrians in terms of geography and the Babylonians. As a result, their lands were often targeted by raiding soldiers from these nations who came in to plunder and destroy. Even when these soldiers were on their route to other parts of the world, they often marched through Zebulun and Naphtali. So day in and day out, the people of Zebulun and Naphtali had one calamity after another. It's certainly very hard for us in this part of the world to really appreciate the despair and the level of physical oppression these guys had. But a, quickly, a, a quick look are the many horrible attacks, specifically the terror attacks that we've experienced in different parts of Europe over the last decade, would give us a little flavor of how terrible the attacks that the people of Zebulun and Naphtali had to experience. In a very real sense, aren't all of us living like the people? Zebulun and Naphtali. Not only with the COVID wave upon wave of COVID cases that are rising up in our communities, 
but also the economic impact this has had, the mental anguish of being locked down, the poor who have been forgotten, the old people who have not had the opportunity to see loved ones. But it's great to see that in verse 1, God says that I have not forgotten you. And these people who seem to have wave upon wave of attack and physical oppression, God says that they will be the first in line to see the impact of the coming Messiah. The second impact the people of Zebulun and Naphtali had was the spiritual gloom. By Isaiah's time, the area was populated primarily by pagans due to the resettlement policy of the Assyrians and Babylonians. So in effect, what happened is that the Israelites were taken away from there and resettled in other parts of the, uh, of the Assyrian Empire and also other conquered people around the Assyrian Empire were taken and brought in, mainly into the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. As a result, you had an eclectic mix of people with the Jews themselves and the Israelites being a small minority. So they had a form of spiritual oppression because they found it difficult to practice their religion and their traditions. So on one hand, they had physical oppression. On the other hand, the only solution, which was their faith and their religion, they found it difficult. I don't know about you, but sometimes in my darkest moments, when I feel very much under the cushion of oppression, I find it at times very difficult to even call upon the name of the Lord. But indeed, God sees that we may have these difficulties. And as a result, as it says in verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. From verse 2 to verse 6, it tells us three things that the coming king would bring, the Messiah. And I would like to look at those three things. The first is the light, guidance. The coming of the Messiah is synonymous with the coming of light to remove the darkness of physical and spiritual captivity. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4 says, In whom the God of this world had blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. We see that the light that God is talking about here, that will lift up the people of Zebulun and Naphtali, and in turn lift us up out of the darkness and the gloom we experience, is the glorious gospel of Christ. In John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. God is telling us that we will see the light of Christ. And as long as we follow him, we would also have that light in our life. This light is available for whoever. But what does this light do to us? 
We find that answer in Psalm 119, verse 130, which says, The entrance of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. So in other words, the light brings insights that would enable us to be free from oppression and difficulties. Just like it says in John chapter 11, verse 10, but if anyone walks at night, he will stumble because he has no light. So with the light, without the light of Christ, we find ourselves stumbling. But it is great in the midst of this darkness, Christ comes and sheds that light in our life. This is one of the coming king's gifts to us. The second one we find in verse 3, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. I believe this refers to prosperity, the multiplication of the nation. We know that God promised Abraham that he would multiply his descendants. We also know that constantly from time to time, God promised the Israelites as long as they follow him, he would multiply them so that they can be so numerous, even more than the sand by the sea. What was so important about this multiplication? In the times of the Israelites, the size of the nation, how populous they were, was a proxy for how strong and how prosperous the country would be. Bigger countries, in terms of people, were more powerful and much more prosperous. So the promise of enlarging the nation reflects the promise of bringing prosperity. But notice the order. First of all, God says, I'll bring light in the midst of this darkness. I'll bring guidance to you so that you would know my way and then I would prosper you. I believe this order is very important so we do not lust after the prosperity of this world that is limited to material things. Do I believe God wants to bless us with material things? Yes, his word says that. But as Christians, we cannot only focus on material blessings. Instead, we focus on the true blessings of God that adds no sorrows to our life and help us to be fully aligned with him. Joshua chapter 1 verse 8 says, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then he will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. I don't want to have any type of success. I want to have good success because I know that the worldly success can entrap us, can make us prisoners, prisoners of the material things. But when we have good success, we know that we are aligned with God and there is no sorrow. The third thing we see is verse four and five. It says, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. 
will be fuel for the fire. I believe that the third thing the coming king brings is deliverance from the oppressor. This reflects the total freedom from all things that oppresses us. Now, part of this has been fulfilled with the first coming of Christ, where he's delivered us from the chain of sin and shame, and we can claim it. But the final fulfillment of this promise would come at the second coming, where death, sickness, and the grave would be finally put to shame. Isn't that so exciting? Isn't that so beautiful? Let us look a little bit closely at the verse. It talks about, it refers to the time, the period of mid, uh, the time of the Midianites. I think this is so important for two reasons. Firstly, the manner on which the Midianites oppressed Israelites, the days of Midianites, there was a specific manner in which the Midianites oppressed the Israelites. When we look at Judges chapter 6, verse 3 to 6, it says, Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the countries. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. In other words, whenever there was a form of prosperity, the attacker came in. Whenever people are finding they're enjoying life, they're having a moment of pause, you feel like there's an attack that has just come in. Have a period of good health, mental stability, a good time in your job, and then suddenly you find out there's an attack. This is the type of oppression that God is saying the Messiah would remove. The second important thing about the reference to the days of the Midianites referred to the manner of victory. I'm sure many of you remember the story. God raised up Gideon, who saw himself as one of the lowest, the least people in the country. But God said, I call you a mighty man of valor. In addition, the number of people that Gideon summoned, he started with 30,000 people, and then God said, no, 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 we got to whittle it down. And he whittled it down to 300. Isn't it amazing to see that even those 300 people did not need to fight? The victory came directly from God. God would fight our battles, the battles against depression, the battles against ill health, the battles against poverty, the battles against confusion, whatever the ailments the enemy has put upon us. And when I refer to the enemy, I talk about the devil and spiritual wickedness. God is saying that there is a promise here for us. 
that he would redeem us from it. The coming king brings these three things, guidance, prosperity, and salvation from oppression, sin, sickness, and disease. How would he achieve all these things? When we look at verse 7, he says, or rather we go into verse 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. I like this because it starts with a child is born. A child represents humanity, the weakness of humanity, the frailty. Whereas a son in the Hebrew context represents divinity and the right to rule. You see, I believe God has a sense of humor. He intervenes often in ways that we least expect by bringing a child. Now the Israelites were looking for a strong deliverer, a mighty military warrior, alternatively a very intelligent, wise king. But God says, I will bring a child that will be born. This tells us that oftentimes salvation may come in the seemingly insignificant things. I believe that we are called to look at things the way God does by meditating upon his word. Our salvation may not always come in the big ways or in the predictable patterns. It may come with the simple, seemingly insignificant things. Sonship here reflects divinity. God would use these seemingly small, insignificant things, infuse it with his power to bring along our salvation. The second part of verse 6 says that, And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All this describes the different nature, or rather aspects of God's nature. Wonderful Counselor represents the guide, and he aligns with Christ being the light of this world giving us insights, counseling us in the moment of our weakness. Mighty God and everlasting Father talks about the all-powerful nature of God that would never cease. And this aligns with God's ability to prosper us and save us from all manners of oppression. And then finally, Prince of Peace, where God secures us and makes sure we are at peace. Freedom from all oppression the enemy can bring. I love this particular verse because it shows that God is not just a wonderful counselor. Christ is not just the mighty king. Neither is he just a Prince of Peace. Many of us would have experienced these aspects of Christ in our lives at several points. 
But I think we should strive to actually experience God in all these areas. And more importantly, as Christians, we should strive to be God's image to the world. When I talk about image, I talk about a reflection of God's nature to the world. When they see us, may they encounter people of great counsel, people who would come side by side with them and be their counselor. When people who are sick, poor, lonely encounter us, may they see people who would be there by them, who would bring healing to them, who would help them in their moment of weakness. And then where there is trouble all around, violence, may we be the oasis of calm. In this moment of Advent, as we reflect upon what the coming King, the mighty God, has come in to do, let us also realize that we are called to do the same to our generation.